As we continue in our series of uh, A Year of the Bible, um, I get to talk to you this morning about one of my favorite topics, and that is, uh, if maybe you've heard this phrase before, the, the armor of God. Um, sorry. And so, uh, who here... Who here loves to read? Like, whether you, whether you get a chance to do it a lot or not, who loves to read? Raise your hand. Okay. You are in good company with JD and Nikki and not me. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I wish sometimes that I liked reading, but I hate it. Part of it is probably because uh, I read really slow. Um, JD will sometimes give me things to proofread, and he'll be like four paragraphs down, and I'm like, I haven't gotten there yet. Um, but... Uh, I really, really don't like it. So who just, like, hates reading will avoid it at all costs? Okay, the, the students. <laughs> Raise their hand. Um, yeah, so, uh, but this message that I'm going to talk to you about today uh, changed my mind as it pertains to the Bible. Um, I still hate reading, but I love reading the Bible. And that sounds super, like, holy, but that's not what I'm getting at. You'll see what I mean in a minute. Um, and so this lesson that I'm about to bring, uh, it, it sparked the desire for me to read, study, and memorize Scripture. I may hate reading in general, but I love reading the Bible. So the New Testament um, was written mostly by a guy named Paul. And the Apostle Paul was a church planter, basically the church planter, not the only one, but pretty much, um, for the early church, uh, right after Jesus' death and resurrection. He goes around to different places in the known world, plants a church, he gets there, he meets people, he forms a house church, he teaches them, they open a church, whatever that looked like back then, and depending on the city. Um, he raises up elders from that house church, and then he leaves, and he goes and does it in a new city. Um, and as he's going about this, the people who he's raised up in different places will often have to write him letters or send messengers with questions, um, because he's pretty much one of the only authorities on Scripture, on the New Testament. Um, and so uh, as, he, as he's receiving these letters, he's writing letters back to them, and that's what most of the New Testament is. Well, not most of it. 13 of 27 books of the New Testament, 13 of them are letters either to churches or to individuals who are ministering in those churches. And so today we're going to be in the book of Ephesians, which is Ephesians chapter 6, which is... Um, uh, written to the church at Ephesus, and one of the things that they're dealing with. Now, all of, these, uh, all of these churches, they all have different issues, right? They've written Paul, uh, sent messengers to Paul saying, what do we do about this? What do we do about that? Um, and Paul's letters are, almost struct are structured almost the same way every single time. Um, he starts with a greeting, uh, and then there, he addresses the problems. Sometimes that means being like, hey guys, good job, keep it up. I know it's hard, but keep persevering. And sometimes that means like, what are you stupid people doing? And he pretty much uses that kind of language in a couple of cases. Um, but then he always ends with encouragement. He always leaves them with some kind of encouragement. And that's where we are today in Ephesians chapter 6, the last chapter of Ephesians. Um, he's just addressed some of the problems that the Ephesians had in their church, and he is about to leave them uh, with encouraging words. And there is a little bit of debate around these words that I will uh, explain in just a minute. But we're in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord 
and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Who's like really uncomfortable right now talking about like spiritual darkness and all sorts of stuff? Okay, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Verse 13. Therefore, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, we're going to blaze through all of these armor pieces, and I'm going to end on the sword, because that's what I want to talk to you about today, as we're in the series on, um, on uh, the year of the Bible. So there is some debate around where Paul gets this analogy from. Uh, many people for a long time have taught that Paul spent a lot of time in prison, um, for different reasons in different cities. He spent a lot of time in prison. He knew Roman guards very well. There's stories of him interacting with different Roman guards at different points. Roman guards had very um, recognizable armor. Um, in general, most armor in those days worked the same. Like it was held together the same way. It was kind of fashioned the same way. Obviously, some people were better at it, had access to better metals and stuff like that. But in general, it worked the same way. So some people say... Paul was probably sitting in a prison somewhere looking at this guard and was like, huh, this is a good analogy that I should use. Some people say that he would never use um, uh, a Roman as an example for, for Jews or for new Christians because they hated the Romans. Some people say he would never do that. I don't know if that's true. But their option, the option there is that, he, that Paul is probably could be talking about the priestly garments and armor that the high priest would wear. Um, and we could sit here and debate that. We could sit here and get into all the intricacies. I'll address uh, two of them. But that's not actually the point of what we're talking about today. So I'm not going to get into that. Um, I just wanted you to know, in case you go look up stuff later, there are two schools of thought. Um, but in general, all armor works the same, and that's what we're going to talk about really quick. Again, I'm about to blaze through this, okay, until we get to the sword, then I'll slow down. So it starts off with the belt of truth. Why would the belt be truth? Truth is what holds all things together. If you start to try to build your defense or build your faith on something that, uh, other than the truth, eventually it's going to crumble, it's going to fall apart. The belt actually held up for different, um, different warriors, held up a girdle that was sometimes pants, uh, sometimes a, a skirt that had armor plates on it, and it protected your legs. And without truth, that was not there. And without truth, you literally don't have a leg to stand on because at the end of the day, the whole, it doesn't matter how good the rest of your armor is if you don't have any legs. Right. Um, anybody ever seen the movie? Nikki's going to hate me. Anybody ever seen the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Anybody ever seen that before? It's all I think about when I read that, or when I think of that as the, the, the Black Knight. I'll bite your legs off. Um, anyways, sorry. Um, 
So yeah, truth holds everything together. The front of the, the breastplate and the back of the breastplate, it went over like a vest and it was loose and it, then it strapped on the side and the belt held it together. Literally, your entire body would be exposed and your arm would be messed up if it's not held together with truth. The breastplate of righteousness. Uh, righteousness is defined as the quality of being morally right or justifiable. So when we talk about righteousness, we're talking about morals, how we behave, how we act, how we interact with other people, how we act towards God. Proverbs 4.23, Solomon writes, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. How many of you have ever done something that you knew was like morally ambiguous? You don't have to tell me what it was, right? I've definitely been here. You knew it was like morally ambiguous, and you're like, if this ever comes back, it's going to hurt really bad. Anybody ever done something like that before? Yeah, okay. So <laughs> nobody wants to raise their hands, but they're shyly nodding their heads, right? I've never done anything wrong. <laughs> um, right, so the, the point is guarding your heart. When we live righteously, we're actually guarding our heart into the future. Does that make sense? Whew, each one of these could be a sermon, by the way. That's why I have to go so fast. Um, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, this is the main point where the armor debate comes in. Um, so Roman soldiers uh, and other soldiers of the time, if you look at the landscape over there in the Middle East, it's, uh, it's very dry, it's very pebbly, and it's easy to slip. And so what they started doing was driving nails through their sandals, through their war sandals, um, effectively creating cleats. And it's the idea of standing firm. Often you had to fight uphill. Oh, it's very hilly over there. And so you weren't, you were, if you were slipping at the same time as trying to fall, or fall uphill, fight uphill, uh, it's not going to go well. And so some people say it means stand firm in your readiness to share the gospel. Some people have a problem with that because you're comparing then fighting with a sword to sharing the gospel. And I get that. But the other uh, interpretation of this has to do with the priests. The high priests actually did not wear shoes when they were serving. This was a nod to uh, Moses back in the Old Testament when he meets God at the burning bush and God says, remove your sandals, the place where you're standing is holy ground. Whenever the priests were serving in the temple, they were barefoot to show that they were always on holy ground, prepared to, do, prepared to minister wherever they stood. Um, a lot of people like this uh, interpretation because it says, as shoes for your feet, right? Just like shoes, be ready wherever you are to share the gospel. The shield of faith. I wish I was talking about this one today. This is my favorite. Actually, it goes between the shield and the sword. Um, the shield of faith is defensive, right? It's still defensive like the rest of our armor, but we control it. We move it. We can move it around. We can choose whether to put it in front of us or not. Um, and that is to say that faith, shield of faith, faith is a choice. In ancient warfare, if, if retreat was ever signaled in a battle, you know, they're like right up next to each other, right? If retreat is ever signaled, you are just like hauling it away, right? And usually, the shield is the first thing that they drop so that they can run faster. Running away, running away from battle is to drop your faith. Um, only used, uh, a shield is only used to guard the front because as Christians, we face the battle that we can't run from. 
As Christians, we face a battle that we can't run from. We may try to, but inevitably, as Christians, we're going to be tempted. We're going to face trials and tribulations. It's going to happen, and we get to choose whether we're going to take up the shield, as the Scripture literally says, take up the shield and hold it in front of us. Now, the Scripture also talks about uh, so that you may extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one, maybe. I think that's what it said. Um, This is one of my favorite parts. So Roman soldiers did do this. Roman soldiers, going into battle, dipped their shields into troughs of water and got them soaked. They were super heavy. So here you have this giant wood shield. Now, different regiments had different types of shields. But you had these huge wooden and bronze shields that were already heavy, and now you've made them waterlogged. But the point is that when people uh, shot fiery arrows at you, as they hit the shields, the water actually put the arrows out. And so it's a, it's a very literal concept that Paul is putting forward here. The idea that this faith may get heavier the closer into battle you get. The faith may get more difficult to carry the closer into battle you get, but it's going to be worth it because otherwise sin and temptation spread like fire. Everybody doing good? I'm going really fast. (laughs) If you want notes on any of these other specific parts, uh, I'll be happy to give them to you. The helmet of salvation, and then we'll be at the sword. The helmet of salvation. Now, the Bible teaches um, the idea of uh, the assurance of salvation, the idea that um, God has us in the palm of his hand as believers. He has us. We are not going anywhere. Our salvation was not dependent on us. We did not achieve it. Therefore, we cannot lose it. If we didn't earn it, (laughs) we can't give it up, right? He holds us. And the idea of of the helmet guarding our, our, our heads, obviously, is the idea that we don't let the devil get in our heads with these, with these twisted ideas about our salvation. We see it all throughout Scripture as Satan tries to attack different people. You see it in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, 2, 3, 3, where um, Adam and Eve are tempted, where Eve is first tempted uh, by the devil, by the, by the serpent, he actually comes up to her and he says, why don't you eat the fruit of this tree that God told you not to eat from? She's like, well, God told me not to eat from it, so I'm not going to. The first thing that Satan says, he doesn't be like, oh, God's dumb. He doesn't say that. He says, did God really say that? He twisted it just a little bit. He actually never lied. He never lied to Eve. If you go, if you go read the scripture, Satan never lied to Eve once. He twisted what God said, and got her to believe something slightly different. So the idea is, uh, if you're struggling this morning with the idea of like, am I saved? Am I a Christian? Do I really believe? Does God love me? Does God hold me and keep me? Don't question in the darkness what God told you in the light. He has held you. He's going to hold you. Don't let Satan in your head. Helmet of salvation. Okay, here we are. The sword of the Spirit. So uh, the Greek and the Hebrew, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, uh, they are very complex languages. They've been around a lot longer than English has as we know it now. And so they have uh, multiple ways of saying kind of the same thing. So like where we might have one word that depending on how it's used in the sentence might have three or four different meanings, 
they would have four different words for each meaning. And sometimes that's awesome because it brings clarity, and sometimes that's annoying because it convolutes things. This is one of those awesome times where it brings clarity. So there, in the Greek, there are two words for the word word. Yep, I'm going to say it again. <laughs> there are two different words in the Greek for the word word. Okay, Wherever you see in the Bible, wherever you see it uppercased, wherever you see word, capital W-O-R-D, I can't spell like JD does backwards. I don't know how he does that. It's crazy. Um, wherever you see that, it's usually the word logos or logos, however you want to pronounce it. We're not going to talk about that one today. That one's awesome too. We're going to talk about the second one, which is the word rhema, R-H-E-M-A, R-H-E-M-A. If you're, uh, so the ch part of the challenge of the year of the Bible is to write in your Bible. So if you want to try it, and, and just in case anybody is feeling guilty about it or doesn't, not sure, this is my study Bible. Um, not the, my like casual reading Bible, but the one that I've read all the way through. And I promise you, if somebody's going to get in trouble for writing in their Bible, it's me, okay? <laughs> Every single page has highlighting and writing on it. Um, it's going to be okay. So if you do underline, I would underline that word, which is the, uh, whatever verse it is, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That is rhema, R-H-E-M-A. Now this word means literally an utterance or a thing said, an actual verbal thing said, not something written, not an idea, not an idea of like honor, like I give you my word, not like that. It is a literal spoken utterance word. So what is Paul saying here? Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, the actual spoken words of God is what he's saying here. So what is the idea? How many of you have ever seen or heard or um, come across a story where uh, the Bible was wielded against other people? Someone used the Bible to beat someone over the head, not physically, well, maybe, but where people were using Scripture to tear other people down. Anybody ever seen that before? Okay. This would not make sense, based on what we just read, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? We can debate. We can uh, argue. I use that loosely. We can debate and uh, study what certain passages might mean, and we can disagree on some of those, right? But using Scripture to oppress people, using Scripture to... Um, discourage people or to um, uh, alienate people for any reason is always going to be wrong and ac actually anti-biblical if the people who do that would read the whole thing. Um, but here's the, here's the idea of rhema. The idea is that the entire Bible is not just one book. The entire Bible is not just one sword. It's an entire arsenal. It's an armory of spiritual swords for spiritual warfare, <laughs> right? For spiritual warfare. If we, um, if we go into, I, I wasn't raised this way, okay? My parents didn't teach me, my teachers didn't teach me, but at some point around high school and college, I started getting the idea that I was gonna go into a world where there was a lot of atheists who were gonna try to trick me into getting rid of my faith, um, I think I've only met like three atheists in my life. But 
somewhere along the lines, I thought I was going to go to college and all my professors were going to try to get me to stop being a Christian. Or I was going to go work somewhere and everybody was going to hate me for being a Christian. Somewhere along the lines, I started believing that. And so I started trying to think, well, I've got to have all these, all these weapons against them. And that's just not the truth. The truth is I have to have weapons for my own mind, my own belief to battle the spiritual forces of darkness that are going to try to get me to get rid of my faith, not the person. So if the Bible is an arsenal or an armory, why then would we not read it? If our, if our battle is spiritual, that's why it's important to dig in. Uh, I don't know how long everybody in here has been a Christian, and it doesn't really matter. Um, here's the message, though, and it's kind of a hard one. The message is, it's going to be hard, right? There are going to be trials. There are going to be temptations. We talked about not too long ago, I think we were in the book of James when J.D. talked about the difference in trials and temptations. There are going to be times of trial where stuff is hard, at home, in your job, in your life in general, whatever it might be, stuff is going to be difficult. That's a trial. And in that trial, in those trials, are going to arise times of temptation, moments of temptations where we are tempted to leave God behind, to find a different way, to put our faith in something else, to put our faith in ourselves, whatever it might be. Trials and temptations are going to come. And we have to be armed and ready for them. David knew this. In Psalm 119.11, he wrote, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. When you're tempted in those moments to do whatever it is, there can be um, spiritual swords in your brain, in your heart, that you know and you can recite to yourself. The Bible tells us to preach the gospel to ourselves. Right? Preach those words to yourselves in those moments. James 4.7 says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Think about it, right? We, we sing that song. We haven't sung it in a minute, but we sing that song, This We Know, We Will See the Enemy Run. How do we know? How do we make him run? By knowing Scripture, by using the swords that we have been given, by wielding them. Now, you might be like, man, Nick, you are painting a war, pretty heavy war picture here. This is my favorite part. I said that a lot today, but this is my favorite part, okay? Jesus did this. After Jesus' baptism, he goes into the desert to fast and to pray for 40 days. And at the end of this 40 days, uh, the actual devil meets him there, and he tempts him three different times with three different things. He says, you must be hungry. You've been fasting. Here's a stone. Turn it into bread. Uh, I'll tell you what Jesus said in a second. And later he says, um, uh, cast yourself off of this, uh, off the top of the temple, and the uh, angels, God will send his angels to rescue you if you really are the Son of God, right? He's questioning who Jesus is. And finally, he says, look at everything. This sounds like a weird Lion King reference, but it's not. He like, takes him up on this hill, and he says, look at everything, right? Everything the light touches. Um, he says, look at everything, and uh, if you bow to me, I will make you king over all of it. Right? Each time that Satan comes to him with these three different um, temptations, Jesus literally doesn't say anything else. He says, the scriptures say. And then he quotes Deuteronomy all three times. Deuteronomy is a, Bible, is a book full of God's literal phrases. Every single one of those three times that Jesus responds to Satan, 
he uses literal utterances, rhema, words of God, to do battle with Satan. He doesn't punch him, although that would be kind of cool too. Um, he doesn't uh, be like, oh, just go away, right? He speaks confidently, says, the scriptures say this. Like, imagine that. Imagine in moments in life, like, you, you know what sin struggles you, you deal with, whatever it may be. Imagine the confidence to say, man, I'm struggling with this. Oh, the scriptures say this, right? That's what we have, and that's why it's important to dig in. So I want to leave you today with three, I'm sorry, five, five scriptures. They're going to go up here, but I would encourage you to write down the, um, the references. The references will be at the beginning of each one. I'll leave you with five scriptures that I would encourage you are a good place to start memorizing. These are not the five that you have to start with, um, but these are, are really good and they apply across the board. Um, the uh, memorization, everybody does it different, but one of the common things that helps a lot of people is to write just this verse on like a note card or a post-it note, put it on your mirror, put it by your bedstand, whatever, something where you're gonna, somewhere where you're going to see it every day. So here we go. Maybe, maybe today you struggle with finding purpose, finding your purpose in life. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Maybe, you know, oftentimes we struggle with, like, separating our purpose from what we do, right? Um, I don't know what everybody does, right? But um, uh, I, I do a, a lot here, but none of this, none of what I've built, none of what I put together, none of it is my purpose. I would actually say that this conversation right now, this, this lesson right now is actually closer to what my purpose is rather than all the preparation that went into it. Maybe today you struggle with the fear that God will abandon you, that you're not good enough. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am sure, this is Paul speaking again, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a pretty exhaustive list. I think Paul meant nothing can do it, right? Maybe today you struggle with the guilt of sins that you have committed in the past. Psalm 37, 23 through 24. By the way, a psalm written by a guy named David who was a murderer and an adulterer. If anybody had some things to be guilty about, this is the dude. And here's what he wrote. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. The Lord upholds him. Let me tell you this, too. Um, it's impossible. Some of you are going to be confused when I say this. It's impossible for you to let God down. You never held him up. God will not let you down because he's holding you up. And we have faith in that. You can never let God down because you're not holding him up. He's holding you up and he will never let you down. Maybe you struggle with the shame of a particular temptation. I mean, let's be honest. Some, uh, some things that we, that we struggle with or can struggle with uh, are more difficult to talk about, more difficult to admit, right? Maybe you struggle with one of those and you find yourself dealing with it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you 
except that which is common to man. Meaning, somewhere, somebody, probably in this room, is struggling with the same exact thing you are. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I've had to recite that one over my life many times. Notice that it does not say God tempts you, by the way. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And finally, maybe your struggle, maybe you struggle with seeing the good in your life or in the world. Maybe you struggle with seeing things as good. Maybe you're currently struggling to see a good outcome to a current bad situation. Romans 8:28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. At the end of the day, we either choose to believe this, to pick up our shield of faith and put it in front of us, or we don't. The shield and the sword are the two that are wielded together as defense and offense. We put our faith in front of us and say, no, Satan, right? No, you will not get me to believe that, and we recite scripture back. We stab with the sword, Satan, not people. We stab with the sword, and we strike back and say, God said this. If all you do is sit there and hide under your shield, it'll work for a while, but eventually it's not going to work anymore. You have to fight back. You have to know the scripture. So as we um, continue in a year of the Bible, uh, there's going to be different opportunities to uh, to dig in in different ways. Some of them may look like that study Bible, which is in-depth and took forever, right? Some of it may look like, hey, I just need to read. I just need to start reading. Proverbs has a lot, a lot of wisdom in it. Uh, the New Testament letters um, have a lot of encouragement in them towards the end, not the middle. <laughs> a lot of encouragement in them, right? Um, not all of the problems that Paul talks about in his letters to the churches, not all of the problems may apply to you, but all of the encouragement does. All of the last few chapters of each uh, letter definitely apply to us all as Christians as we encourage each other and as we are encouraged um, in our faith, in our walks together. So let's pray really quick. Not really quick, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for the ability to be here. Uh, we thank you for people who are willing to come early and put salt on the walk so that people don't bust their butts like I did this morning. And I pray, God, that you would be with us all as we strive this year to, to learn more about you, God, to dive into your word, God, and to study it, to, to, uh, to ingest it, God, in a way that it dwells inside of us, God, that you dwell inside of us, that our spirit is strengthened, God, that the Holy Spirit inside of us is strengthened for the battles that inevitably lay in front of us. I pray that we would not fear those battles. God, I pray that we would not fear um, what may come, uh, however ominous or um, big it may seem in front of us, God. I pray that we would hold up our shield faithfully, God, and that we would wield our sword well with knowledge and with conviction and with faith, God. I pray for um, each and every person here, God, uh, no matter where we are in our walk, Father, we always need more of you. No matter how long we've been Christians, God, we always need to pursue you more. God, it's a never-ending, uh, seemingly, sometimes seemingly hopeless endeavor to pursue you, God. But that's why you came down to us. God, you came down 
so that we would understand you, and you left us your word so that we would understand you even more. And we thank you for that, God. We thank you for the scriptures. I pray that each person here would grow in their desire to learn, in their desire to read, at least read your scriptures, God, and grow in their delight of spending time with each other in the scripture as well. God, we love you and we praise you. It's all these things we pray in your name. Amen.